Bill, we swore to each other when we started this podcast endeavor, we would do the best to toss in as much local flavor as possible. And I'm pretty sure I told you at one point, if we limited ourselves to Missouri, we'd never get to 100 episodes. Yeah, and here we are approaching it, but obviously we've branched out. Um, It was a promise we made to each other as well as our audience, and by golly, we are Missouri men of our word. (laughs) In saying that, it is sometimes difficult to find subject matter with enough plot and story to carry an entire episode like what we like to do. So I was very happy in our decision to toss in a few smaller, maybe less documented or known strange tales of Missouri. Well, it's like I, it's what I like to call an anthology episode. You I know, like that word. Collection of short stories. A little mixture of Ozark's folklore, scary, unexplained, and those documented stories that are just quite simply put stranger than fiction or sci-fi. Join us tonight if you dare as we keep it close to home, sharing some Missouri strange tales. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded we become fearful to be deceived. Still we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. So, Eric, first of all, in all honesty, I gotta be, I gotta come clean here Uh a little bit. Uh oh, confession time. When I suggested we do strange Missouri tales and do it like, like I said, an anthology episode, one, it was purely, I told you, I was concerned about how we'd get to 100 episodes. Mm. Well, if we do strange tales from each state, that's 50 right there. Boom. So, so there, there may have been you know, an ulterior motive on this, <laughs> but I thought, you know, if we do a strange Missouri and strange Tennessee and strange Florida and strange so Kentucky and so forth, and strange Carolinas. Every every state has little strange tales that maybe they don't amount to much. Maybe throw four or five of them together. We can fill, you know, an hour talking about these things. So the first story I have from Missouri here was that of Molly Crenshaw. That is a name I have heard. I had heard it before. I guess I didn't understand what the story was in its entirety, but I didn't I didn't have the whole story. I'd, I'd never heard it. I'd heard the name, I guess, but I'd never heard the whole story. Right. Molly Crenshaw is called the witch that was chopped to pieces. And some tales say that she was a freed Jamaican slave who lived in West St. Charles County during the 19th century. Now, stories say that she was a voodoo practitioner and that she settled in that area in the mid-1800s. And she was often called upon by locals for spells and potions. And since the locals embraced her practices, she made no effort to be secretive about who she was or what she did. Seemed to be pretty common, honestly, for that type. However, after a particularly bad winter that destroyed the local crops in the field, the locals turned to Molly and blamed her and her evil ways for this. As often seems to be the case. Yeah, they're okay with her as long as, you as, long know, as everything's going good. good. Yeah, yeah. So a mob descended on her home where Molly stood out front and confronted them, and she placed a curse on anyone who touched her. Now, regardless, the mob attacked and killed her. Some say she was cut in half. Others say she was drawn and quartered. But every version of the tale ends with her death. Now, her body parts were buried in separate graves, whether that was one grave or four graves or a dozen graves or however many graves. Her body parts were, were scattered across the county and uh, buried in unmarked graves, usually unmarked graves. This was all done in an attempt to reduce her ability to haunt the countryside and the locals. 
I guess if you scatter her pieces, I don't know. I mean, she's already dead, right? I'm going to play devil's advocate and say you chopped her up and now you spread her out more so she can haunt <laughs> a bigger area. But the legends say that her pieces are moving. Mm. They're under the ground and year by year, inch by inch, they move closer to one another. Creepy. Struggling to reunite themselves so that Molly Crenshaw can rise from the grave and get her revenge. Now, teenagers from St. Charles County still travel out and about and go out in the woods and go around to different graveyards trying to, to find her unmarked graves. And many claim that they feel uncomfortable at the sight of one of her graves. Some will taunt or challenge her. They almost always seem to have some sort of bad luck afterwards, like a car not starting or breaking down. After they taunt her, what would you expect? I mean, come on. <laughs> well, devil's advocate. All pun intended. <laughs> when you were a teenager running around, did you have the most reliable of vehicles? No. Or did you have what you could afford? I had what I could uh, barely afford. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember going out and doing some amateur ghost hunting one time and coming home with my friend. And we're driving with my friend in his car when one of the radiator lines busted. And we would drive just as far as we could get till we redlined it and then stop and let well, it cool let down. Let it cool down enough and... It took us hours to travel 10 miles, man, I swear. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe that's just maybe uh, it's just bad maintenance. The stuff of memories. <laughs> but uh, one urban legend does tell of a pair of football players in the 50s who found one of her graves and tried to take the tombstone. And sheriff's deputies found their bodies the next day impaled on the graveyard fence. Oh. There's no p newspaper reports that have that story. So, you know, we'll take that one with a grain of salt. Now, there was a real-life Molly Crenshaw in the area. She died by suicide on February 22nd, 1913. The local paper reported that she was related to several prominent St. Charles families. Hold on, let me guess. Suicide. She cut her limbs off and drug them in different areas. No. It was, no. It was Oh, it wasn't it one like of those of kind of suicide. Okay, okay. But she was a teacher and she lost her hearing and she became so depressed that she could no longer pursue her lifelong passion that she chose to end her life. Uh, her age was 50 at the time of her death. The census listed her race as white, so I don't think she was of Jamaican descent. No mention of a medical healer, herbalist, none of that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and there's no documented connection between the real Molly Crenshaw and the practice of voodoo. There's that. I don't that. believe that Molly was a voodoo witch, but apparently it's something that keeps the teenagers out and about causing trouble. So I gotta have something to do. Now, you know me, Eric. I'm into monsters. I'm a monster guy. I'm the monster guy. We're going to call you the monster guy. On our guy. podcast here. I'm the history guy. Bill's the monster guy. <laughs> you know, considering I'm from Missouri, I've always had a special place in my heart for Momo, the Missouri monster. I always thought that was a strange name. I really did. I mean, it's really, it's a very simple name. I want Mo. Mo, Mo. I want Mo Monster. Momo, the Missouri monster. Missouri monster. So Momo is described as an ape-like creature similar to Bigfoot, a large bipedal humanoid. One of the main differences is it has a pumpkin-sized head with no discernible neck. It just kind of all flows together in that area. Now, the beast is covered with black hair. Specifically, they mention that it has uh, long black hair on its, like its bangs hang down in its eyes, if you will. And the eyes are sometimes described as glowing orange through the hair. Uh, it's about seven feet tall, and it has a, a very putrid odor, described as, as a, just a rank stench on the Momo. So reports began with sightings from up and down the Mississippi River, with later sightings being reported west along other waterways. Really, most of the sightings started in the Louisiana-Missouri area in 1971 and 72. July 1971, Joan Mills and Mary Ryan were driving down Highway 79 on their way to St. Louis. Now, they decided they were going to stop and have a picnic, so they found sort of a picturesque location, and they pulled off on a gravel road to get off the main road and then found a clearing to have a picnic in. 
Sure, why not? Now, while they were eating lunch, they uh, they began to smell this just horrible, horrible stench. And they looked around, and Joan looked up specifically and saw a creature standing in the thicket next to them looking down on them. She described it as half ape and half man. And when it realized it had been seen, it emitted a gurgling sound and stepped out of the brush. They just... and. It, and it just, it, it came towards the young women, scared them. I mean, obviously scared them. I mean, come on. And it was just saying, hey, you going to eat yeah. that sandwich? So they, they ran to their car and locked the doors. And the beast came up into the car and began feeling around. At one point in time, he even attempted to open the door. Now, I know some people would say, well, that puts a lot of intelligence on the beast. But I've seen videos of lions opening car doors. I've seen videos of bears opening car doors. So it's a level of intelligence that's still beast-like. Yeah. Now, the beast kind of roamed around and tried to get in the car for a little while until Joan accidentally hit the horn, which obviously, you know, the beast jumped up and kind of moved back. And then it went back to where their picnic had been and ate what was left of their food. I think at one point she says it kind of took a peanut butter jar and just squeezed it into its mouth. (laughs) So uh, you finished eating what remained of their food and then walked off into the woods. On June 30th, 1972, two young men, uh, Tim and Vaughn from Troy, Missouri, they were fishing along a secluded part of the river there, and I've got a name here, but C-U-I-V-R-E, Quiver? C-U-I-V-R-E. Yeah, I don't. I, I wouldn't know how to pronounce that. Hmm. I don't know the right way to say it, so I got that one wrong. Anyway, they were fishing when Vaughn noticed a foul odor while taking a break. So he looks across the river, and he notices what he thought was, quote, a naked hippie on the other side of the <laughs> river. <laughs> In pesky naked hippies. So, of course... Vaughn, he hollers at Tim, and he goes, hey, man, check out the naked hippie. <laughs> so Tim looks up, and Tim realizes this is not a man. Dude, you need to take a yeah. bath. He is much taller than a regular man, covered in hair, uh, with a head sitting right on its shoulders, and that pumpkin head again. Now, the two of them tried to get across the river to get a better look. Uh, at the and, naked hippie. And then, well, <laughs> well, they realize it wasn't a hippie now. Anyway, they tried to get a better look. They changed their mind when the beast turned and charged right at them, at which point in time they took off running for their lives. Love that story. (laughs) July 1972, a couple from West Virginia is passing through the area. They stopped at Logan Conservation Area in northern Lincoln County. They left their vehicle, and when they got out, they immediately started to smell something they described as smelling like an entire family of skunks. So it must have been pretty pretty rough. It was then that they saw the beast with its big head and glowing eyes staring at them. He charged at them and running straight to the car. They barely made it inside the car when it got there and said that it tormented them for about 30 minutes, kind of roaming around the car like it did with the two young ladies at the picnic before it finally got tired of harassing them and disappeared back into the woods. Now, perhaps the most well-known sighting, but a very simple sighting here, occurred on July 11th, 1972. Two boys, Terry and Wally Harrison, were playing in their backyard in the outskirts of Louisiana, Missouri. Their older sister, Doris, was in the kitchen when she heard the boys screaming. She looked out the window, and all three of them describe a massive, dark-haired, man-like creature standing at the edge of the forest, watching the boys play, holding what seemed to be the corpse of a dog. How not sweet. Yeah. Now, many others claim to have sightings that year. The local fire department chief and city council member Richard Allen Murray said he was driving along the town branch creek bed at about 11 p.m. when he turned towards a small hill and saw a massive upright creature in his headlights. Uh, now, once the creature realized it had been spotted, it, it hurried over the hill and disappeared. He didn't see it again. And after multiple sightings in the area, a 20-person posse was assembled to hunt the beast. You can say that one 
five times fast, 20 person posse. <laughs> 20 person posse. Yeah. Uh, they never did find anything other than some tracks. Now, some tracks were found and they were submitted to the director of the Oklahoma City Zoo who determined that they were those of an unknown primate species. There's that. And I know the Momo sightings do persist, although now we would label them Bigfoot sightings, of right. course. Right. So. Well, especially with the stench. I mean, that is, you know, the big footprints, obviously, that's getting the Bigfoot name. The The stench seems to be very common with the Sasquatch sightings, but it's a pesky naked hippie zoo. That's <laughs> the ones you got to watch for. I don't know about you. I'm absolutely the kind of guy that would make someone look at that, too. If I was like, hey, look at that naked hippie. Like, where? I, uh, I mean, for good example, I was at a concert one time with my sister and brother and a friend of my sister's, and there was a roadie on stage, and he was hooking up some cables, and this guy was bent over, and, and let's just say that if his pants were any lower in the back, <laughs> you would have been able to see the front. Oh. I mean, this is how low these pants clearance, were. Clearance, yeah. And so, of course, I elbow my sister, and you know, hey, check that out, you know, and I point <laughs> to the stage, and she just smacked the heck out of me for that. <laughs> so, I absolutely would have been like, hey, buddy, check out, hey, Eric, check out that naked hippie across I, I, the road. I'd be like, where, where? Well, I've got a tale here of the Springfield Albino Farm that I'd like to share. There's a farm that's located in North Springfield, uh, now 70 acres of what's left of a once 330-acre family farm that predates the Civil War. There are many tales and legends that connect this farm with albinos, something right out of a horror story. As a matter of fact, if you go and look, you will find some, and I will stress, B-rated movie horror versions of Albino Farm. Well, and I think I've listened to a couple of podcasts that talk about it. So The legend dates back decades and ranges from tales of a mad scientist that acquired albino slaves and began to breed them on the farm during the Civil War. Another version is that the owners, or possibly caretaker, was actually an albino, and they kept their family or prisoners hideously disfigured, locked away here on the farm. The family farm was actually called Springlawn. The family that owned it has prospered through the years. The farm was known in its day for raising fine quality dairy cattle, draft horses, collie dogs, and crops. The owners, Mike Sheedy, I died in April 1934. And I said Sheedy, that may be Shetty. I'm not exactly sure on the pronunciation on that. But eventually three sisters, an Agnes, a Margaret, and a Helen were left to manage the family's considerable holdings after his death. Now, one story, which might or might not be true, is that the sisters hired an albino caretaker who would scare the bejesus out of young people who trespassed on the property uh, to drink and have wild beer parties in park. So you're out there drinking. It's night. And I don't know if you've ever met someone who has albinism. I, I've seen... I haven't a, a personally. Couple, like, I, I, I have never met anybody, but I've seen... You know, like I, I saw a guy one time at Walmart when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. And imagine you're out there drinking, it's nighttime, and out of the woods comes this all white. Yeah, the lighting wouldn't even have to be that yeah. great. Just the moon's light would, just a little bit, and it would almost I imagine like that would illuminate be disconcerting. And that's no offense to anybody with the condition. No. That's, that's, but I'm just saying, you know, a bunch of. But if, if that is what's going on, that's a good tactic. A bunch of country kids out in the middle of the woods. You're, you're, we're going to scare the bejesus out of them. A more far-fetched tale is that there was a secret hospital on the grounds, and this is kind of straight up out of X-Files, where a half-cocked scientist performed experiments on albinos that was collected by the military. The albino ghosts, of course, still haunt the grounds, or some would have you believe. 
The three sisters later passed away, and the property, which included a house and various outbuildings, became uninhabitable at about 1979. The buildings were damaged in a 1980 arson fire uh, one year after that, and one of the barns was entirely destroyed due to the fire. Today, remnants of the farm buildings rise up from the thick, overgrown brush and trees. And if you would visit the ruins today, it's hard to imagine the beauty that the farm once possessed. It's become a teenage hangout. Piles of trash, unfortunately, and debris litter the grounds, along with, of course, beer cans and broken glass bottles. And I will say, based on the pictures, an uncanny amount of plastic water bottles. A few small fire pits that appear that uh, have been used maybe just weeks before. Oh, and let's also not forget the old silo looming in the distance that someone has spray-painted a foreboding message, Evil Awaits. In the remnants of another building are the words simply, Run. Someone has forewarningly painted his graffiti. Now, John L. Holston, at age 70, whose company currently owns the property, has asked that that property's address and exact location not be given. He knows people still visit the vacant property, and he doesn't want this story or any of the stories about it to encourage more tourists or trespassers. In fear of injury, not from ghosts, but rusty metal bars and nails and boards, and most certainly would be more common. Mr. Lulston, the property owner, has reported that there are no immediate plans for developing the property or really doing anything with it. Uh, As I had stated earlier, many of the acres has been kind of subdivided and let off, uh, sold. The stories, he's all heard them about the albinos of the human variety and the government X-File stories. He swears they are all myths. He goes on to say, my father was a local historian and he has looked into the history of this property and all around Springfield. But he does say, yes, there were albinos, but they were cattle. They were albino cattle. Still, if you ask around Springfield, Missouri, the stories will vary for sure. Everything from ghostly lights and voices that call you to lure other trespassers deep into the woods, even to demonic creatures that lurk in the shadows awaiting to reach out and grab you, and of course the elusive albinos that now hunt what used to be the hunted. And that's what I've got on the albino farm of Springfield. Now, I'd heard that story before in in some context. And yeah, like, man, you know, one, it just, kind of shows our ignorance when we're like oh the albino farm and he's experimenting on albinos and what i mean they're just people makes it, it makes for a good sci-fi story yeah, but it, it sounds but, scary but well you talked about a place you can't visit or you shouldn't visit i'll talk about a place you're supposed to visit Ooh, up around saint joseph is the glore psychiatric museum oh and yes i believe you and i have talked about this before i had the the opportunity to go there a few years ago i haven't made it but it is on my bucket list Oh, I, I, I recommend it. One, you could just spend a day around St. Joseph. I think we went, there's like a Pony Express Museum there. There's a really interesting nature center that kind of is on the river. Beautiful area. Architecture, I, everything. A lot of history. Yeah, like we, we really enjoyed our, our time there. I think we, we stayed the night and just made a weekend of it. But it was, it was fun. It was interesting. I might get slammed here, but the hotel we stayed at had a built-in water park. If that's the, like, don't go to that place. The room was like probably... 80 degrees and humid. I think we were pulling air directly from where the water <laughs> we were park in a was. Greenhouse. I couldn't sleep. It was miserable. Wow. There goes that sponsor for the future. Yeah, they're not going to sponsor. <laughs> and that's fine. I think we should only take sponsors that we would, you know, use. And I'm never going back there. 
So anyway, Glore Psychiatric Museum, St. Joseph, Missouri, uh, features a 130-year history of the adjacent state mental hospital. It's been called one of the 50 most unusual museums in the United States, and its collection began in 1966 when George Glore, an employee of the Missouri Department of Mental Health, built some scale models of primitive devices that were used in mental health treatment once upon a time. And some of these were truly barbaric, so, you know, keep in mind, the things that you would see there are just unsettling. Uh, he built this display for Mental Health Awareness Week, and the display eventually would grow into the and become the museum in 1967. Uh, Glore served as the museum's curator until his death in 2010. It was first housed in a ward of the original State Lunatic Asylum Number no. 2, which is kind of an intimidating name in itself. Yeah, that right. And that building was built in 1874 and resembles a fortress. And I will say that the, I think part of that building is still there. And it's a very intimidating building. Uh, it was initially intended to house 25 patients and expanded to eventually house nearly 3,000 in the 50s. Now, exhibits include artifacts from the old mental hospital, medical equipment, staff uniforms, photographs, as well as artwork and writing created by the patients, life-size models of devices from the 16th, 17th, and 18th century, these primitive devices that were used for the treatment of mental health issues back in the day. Now, my oldest son, and for, and forgive me, buddy, because I know people that you know will listen to this and, and might very well tease you, but he was kind of a sensitive young man back in the day, and things like this really unsettled him. He, he, was, he was moved by the things he saw. He was very, very upset by some of these primitive devices and some of these primitive techniques that are on display, like literally drilling holes in people's heads, you know, submitting them to, to like hot, steamy, you know, burning, well, scalding I I, water. I haven't actually got to, to attend that museum or to go to that, but I've been around similar things. And there's, there's an energy that at least I feel, I, I would like to assume anyone that's oh. even halfway open could feel. I mean, I, I found no indicator that this museum was haunted. But I will tell you, when you're there, that place has an energy, a high feeling. creep factor. Yeah. If I had turned a corner and saw some sort of spook or specter, I would have been like, "Oh yeah, no, I expected that." <laughs> right um, on cue. One of the things that I found fascinating is some of the artifacts are collected from ex patients. I believe at one point in time, the orderly saw a, a patient slipping pieces of paper into the back of a functional television. I remember your story on this. Yes. Yeah. And I guess they took off the back of that TV. There were 525 handwritten notes put in the back of this TV. They have a like a mosaic on the wall of all of these notes. And some of them, they were being deposited there by schizophrenic patients. So, like, the handwritings are different. The messages, it's it's really... What kind of messages? I mean, out of curiosity. I don't, I don't remember what they... You know, it's been a few years. But I mean, just and really, warnings, probably. Really, really kind of... I, more sad than anything to, to look at it. Gotcha. You think about, you know, there's there's one display that is of a of a patient who collected hundreds of thousands of cigarette packages during their time there. Just the packages. That yeah. was it. Didn't smoke, I don't think. Hmm. But yeah, some of these primitive devices and in, in you know, they they the while those devices are only mock ups, they were never used. They do have some things in there from, you know, back in the day and in Definitely, those things have to carry some sort of residual energy of some kind. You put a collection of those together in any building, and, I mean, it's going to amplify the energy. But it is it is absolutely, I would recommend going when you get an opportunity. So we're going to travel from one end of our state to the other. You know, Glore is up there in St. Joseph in the northwest corner. We're going to go down to the southeast down by the Boot Hill for my next little story. And we're going to talk about the Kennet Alligator Roundup. Oh, I like the sound of it. Sounds weird, right? Alligators in Missouri. Like, we're not supposed <laughs> to have alligators. Alligator roundup. 
So the Kennett police engaged in what they called an alligator roundup in April of 2012. That That's not that far, not that far long back. ago, yeah. So why were they engaged in alligator roundup, you might ask? Well, two years prior, a man had arrived in town selling reptiles and said he'd come from Florida, was touring the country, selling reptiles, and when... Law enforcement finally ran him out of town. In his statement, he said he had sold roughly 50 alligators to local residents. That's a lot of alligators. Well, it's illegal to own alligators in that part of the state. Imagine that. So as the alligators grew bigger over the next couple of years, people began releasing them. What? They grow? Yeah, they grow. What started this all was when someone had found a, a roughly two-year-old alligator in some sort of nature area down by Cape Girardeau. So they're like, well, where does this alligator come from? And they start looking into it, and they find out this dude had been selling little alligators to the people in Kennet. So after two years, I guess an alligator gets up to about three foot long. And according to the police there, and this might have been an exaggeration, but a three foot long alligator is capable of tearing an arm off. Uh, I bet they can tear out a good chunk of meat, but yeah, I don't know they're going to rip your sure arm off. Dislocate the bone and all. But yeah, yeah, enough to do some damage. The police told the people at that time, although it is legal to own an alligator in the city, if you just bring it to them, to us. Now, did you say it is legal? No, or? it's it is illegal. It is illegal. Okay, okay, okay. Let, let me say that again. Make sure I'm getting it right. Make sure all the people the, out there the, listening. The police it told is them, illegal. Although it is illegal to own an alligator in the city, if you bring those alligators to us and turn them in, we will not charge you. We just want to collect the alligators. Very kind. I guess the stories had alligators in the the gutters, alligators in the ditches. People were concerned for the safety of their little dogs when they'd go out to the restroom, you know? Oh, definitely. Like, yeah, I think my dog, my big dog, Teddy, I call him my big walking around Muppet dog. <laughs> I don't think he'd be smart enough to stay away from Alex. He's not the <laughs> brightest dog. So my other dog is a little smarter, though. Well, it's funny that you actually touched upon alligators, you know, obviously an exotic animal, because the next story, it's a, it's a quite lengthy one, but. It involves Springfield serpent sightings. And, of course, I'm referring to Springfield, Missouri, just a little uh, south uh, down I-44 from right here where we're at. Love we it. got snakes, so serpent sightings in and of themselves would not be unusual. Not unusual, but bear with me, Bill. This one, <laughs> this one gets more than a little interesting. We're going to take you back to August 15th, 1953, Springfield, Missouri. It was the 1400 block of East Olive. Police respond to an emergency call where a strange snake has been reported to be in the resident's backyard of a Rolland Parish. Now, by the time the police arrive, Mr. Parrish has already killed the snake with a garden hoe. Normally, this would be an open and shut case. Again, as Bill said, it's a serpent, it's a snake. However, this particular snake has a strange head and strange markings, which causes the police to take a bit of pause and investigate just a little further. Now, only a block away is what is known as Mauer's Exotic Pet Shop, and it's quickly speculated that this particular snake most likely was an escapee or runaway from the shop. Police take this slain serpent to the owner, a Rio Mauer, who examines the carcass and states without a shadow of a doubt, this snake's not from my business, it's not poisonous, and it's just a snake with a birth defect. You think, okay. Well, he should know, right? He deals in exotic He's snakes. He's an expert. I mean, yeah, yeah. So the case is quickly dismissed. But as happened, chance would have it, the local Springfield at that time, the newspaper was called Springfield News and Leader, where today it's Springfield News Leader, uh, happens to print a story about Rattlesnake James, a convicted serial killer who uses rattlesnake venom to kill his victims, including his fifth wife. 
Okay, now my first impulse when I hear the name Rattlesnake Jane, love like that serial killer. <laughs> I'm assuming it's just like, here's a rattlesnake. Here's a snake. And just chucks a snake at you. No, apparently he was using the venom and like poisoning people with it, like putting it in their drinks and, and that, that kind of that's stuff. That's bad enough, right? Yeah, it's bad enough. But you know, I, yeah, I can fully imagine this <laughs> old Wild West rattlesnake James just throwing snakes at people. But perhaps this similar story caught citizens a bit in a frenzy. And quickly, the story of the strange Springfield snake in the 1400 block of East Olive gets quite a lot of gossip going. Things get embellished. Stories begin to run rampant about Springfield's own version of a deadly serpent killer raining down on the city. Enough to get the Springfield Health Department involved, who assures the citizens, hey, 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 it's just a strange occurrence. There's nothing more. It was just a one-time thing. Now, did they identify what kind of snake it was at this point? At this point in time, no. Okay. At this point in time, it just looks weird. Got a big head, got some strange markings. However, one week later, a second serpent sighting is reported to the police just right across the street from the first incident. This time, the homeowner is a Wesley Rhodes, and it is at 1421 East Olive. He has his pet bulldog that has cornered a serpent beneath a bush. Mr. Rhodes quickly kills the snake again with a garden hoe. Now, that snake is four and a half feet long. Same type of reptile, same strange markings. Obviously a little bit larger, but a flatter shape to the head as the previous report. Now, this time, to Bill's question, the police decide they're going to take this serpent carcass to a local junior high science teacher. His name's Herbert Condre. Because that's absolutely your expert, right? At your expert <laughs> in the field. I'm, I'm betting that the, you know, one of the officers knew this guy. He was a friend or something. And, you know, they took it over and they're like, hey, we want your opinion. You know, what, what kind of species is this snake? Now, at a single glance, this junior high science teacher quickly states, this is not some common garter snake with a deformity. Instead, it's a deadly India cobra several thousand miles away from its yeah. natural habitat. So that's a long way from home, and that is a, a serious snake. Bad, bad snake. Those things are, they can be huge. Yes. Now, the police again decide, hmm, these two sightings have been right pretty close to that Mauer's exotic pet shop, or that Rio Mauer, they go revisit. Now, this time, he's a little aggravated, and he says, what's this continued bombardment of this police questioning? I'm sorry, there's been two snakes, one of them confirmed to be a cobra. You got an exotic, exotic pet shop, yeah, we're, we're going to be knocking on your door. Now, Rio Maurer does finally admit to the officers, yeah, 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 the shop does carry cobra snakes, like it's nothing. Why? Yeah, exactly, why? But each of them are closely observed and accounted for scrupulously in record keeping. Police then take this same snake to a Bill Sweeney. Now, he's the director of the Springfield Zoo and also a Professor T.M. Parsons of Drury College. They're thinking maybe the junior high teacher, a good friend maybe, but maybe he blew this out of proportion. Uh, now, obviously, these gentlemen both have what would be considered a greater knowledge of identifying snakes, especially that from the zoo. To some surprise, however, both agree with the junior high teacher, Herbert Condre, that uh, this is, in fact, a deadly India cobra. Dr. Parsons even shows where the serpent's fangs have been removed as if it was for domestication. I was going to say, that's a clear indicator that it was probably at a pet shop at some point. Absolutely. But states the fangs are already in the process of regrowing, and within a few more days, this snake's bite could be deadly venom. Now, 
I'm not a snake person, Bill. I don't like snakes. I'll be honest. <laughs> I didn't realize. I guess I assumed if you removed the things, they were gone. But well, apparently not. Okay, I got to be honest. I would have thought the same thing too. It's like teeth, right? So yeah, you pull, you a, yank them pull out, a they tooth. don't come back. But uh, apparently, somebody out do, there, there's experts more than us. Do two snakes have baby teeth? I, maybe <laughs> I, I don't know. Those are my baby fangs. Those are baby fangs. Now the police again visit the local Mowers Exotic Pet Shop, where Rio Mauer is aggravated again with the continued bombardment. Now at this point in time. I'm sorry, but yeah, all things are pointing directly to the exotic pet shop, but the police would need more evidence before they were able to press any charges. Until then, the department cases seem to kind of stall out. There's no more snake sightings for a while, and the locals as well as the police kind of take a deep breath. That is until August 23rd, 1953. The Springfield News and Leader newspaper decides yet again to run a story in the newspaper. As things are starting to fade away in the shadows about the snake sightings, they it's, all, it's all about selling them papers. Sell them papers. Sell them papers. They received confirmation that the snakes that were previously claimed a week or so before are deadly India cobras. Now, that hadn't been leaked out to the public at this until this point. They also do a little name dropping, and they literally say, Rio Maurer, the owner of Maurer's Exotic Animal Company at 1421 St. Louis Street, has been heavily questioned stating two cobras have already been found near the shop and that the owner, Mr. Maurer, puffs up with anger when accused. (laughs) And Maurer goes on record stating that we haven't had a cobra loose in months. (laughs) I don't feel any better with that. We haven't had a cobra loose in In months. months. Which implies that he's had them loose. Yes. Yes. Now he goes on and he says that we have them on hand all of the time, but we haven't had any get away. So again, what the heck? We have them all the time. None's been loose in months. You know, we keep scrupulous records. Interest in that story continues to a point where the newspaper gets photographs of these serpents from Springfield, and they run several more stories about them in the coming days, adding more frenzy and fuel to the fire to panic the area. Now, this is enough, however, that Mr. Mowers gets a city attorney, a a Gerald Gleason, and he gives an order for the police to do a full inspection of Maurer's pet shop. This starts with what can only be explained as a full-out media blitz by the Springfield News and Leader and Mr. Maurer's of the pet shop. We jump two days forward, August 25th, 1953. Once again, the Springfield News and Leader reports this update. <laughs> the citizens demand the shop must be closed immediately. As police visit Rio Maurer at his shop, they give him an ultimatum. Get the snakes outside of the town, or we are going to shut your business down and take your license. After a brief period, Mr. Rio Maurer states, fine, I'll move the snakes well outside the city. But he continues to defend himself in innocence, saying, these snakes are not mine. They must belong to one of the many other numerous exotic pet shops that carry cobras. That was a joke, by the way. No. <laughs> I was say, how many? What? I was getting ready to say, how many pet, st- pet shops carry cobras? <laughs> Now, behind the doors of political chamber meetings, they continue to pursue the topic. And it's suggested that uh, by someone there on the the committee that there were some carnival workers that could have released the snakes since they'd been in town just a few weeks prior. Those damn carnies. Right? What sense does that make, (laughs) though, really? But ironically, this does seem to get some of the citizens to pull off on the whole witch hunt of Rio Maurer and it. Some people kind of buy into it. Those blasted carnies, they're releasing snakes in our neighborhood. 
So the shops and neighbors, they, they don't believe this story. Uh, they're very adamant against Rio Maurer uh, to the point where they contact the police and they offer testimony against the shop owner. One states, Maurer dumps snakes in a sack or from a sack into a water-filled tub in his backyard. I've watched him do it several times. They escape all the time. Another states Maurer can often be seen with a stick and a sack walking down the ditches and streets around the neighborhood, apparently gathering snakes and iguanas that have escaped from the shop. To add insult to injury, Mr. Bauer has a history with escape animals from his shop that kind of comes to surface. On one occurrence, two monkeys escaped from the shop and caused havoc in the neighborhood for several days before being caught. On yet another occasion, several large iguana lizards escaped from an enclosure where they dropped down out of trees on several neighbors, some as much as two foot in length. Fun times at the picnic. August 29th, 1953, the Springfield News and Leader does another follow-up story. With the new testimonies from these neighbors and the citizens stormed the police department, bogged down the telephone lines, demanding the shop be permanently closed and also asking police to divulge the new location of where the snakes have been moved to, stressing that it is for the children's safety concerns. It's always for the kids. Always for the kids. We're, at, we're there for the kids. Now, soon the new location does leak out, and once again, the Springfield News and Leader is quick to publish and update that story with the address. First off, the new location is not as far out of the city as Mr. Mowers kind of insinuated, but they're being kept at what is called Miller Sale Barns out on West Highway 66, just a stone throws outside the city limits. Jump forward a few days to August 31st, 1953. In the wee hours of the morning, police are alerted to yet another serpent spotting. This is the same day that the attorney and police will be doing a full inspection raid, if you will, on the new location, keeping the serpents. Just before midnight, teenager is teenagers are driving home at the intersection of National and East Trafficway when this particular teenager runs over one of the snakes in the street. He gets out of the car to investigate, and he finds a snake nearly four foot in length, still alive, injured, coiled, and striking at him. He kills the creature with the jack handle tool from his vehicle. Then at approximately 2 a.m., that Technically, next morning, an unnamed man flags down a police officer on St. Louis Street where he claims he saw a six-foot-long, four-to-five-inch girth or width snake slither beneath several parked cars in a parking lot. Officer Sisko calls in reinforcements and two other officers come to the area for a full-blown search where it is conducted, yet they are unable to find the giant cobra. Just about sunset that same day at 6 a.m., yet another report comes in from East Trafficway, where 40-year-old Ralph Moore has killed a serpent that he found crawling through his front lawn. The Springfield News and Leader once again jumps at the opportunity and publishes a news story about the rash of cobra sightings with two more confirmed kills. This brings the city of Springfield into a cobra fever tying up telephone lines to the police department for days. Everything from cobra sightings to garter snakes are being brought in, even a few of those questionable iguanas, bringing the police department to a full-blown frenzy and mass hysteria. Now, several witnesses, they also come forward during the time claiming to see Mr. Rio Mowers, the pet shop owner, running frantically around the shop with a stick and a bag, 
Once again, as if trying to capture snakes or other animals, Dr. Parsons, as I had previously mentioned of Drury College, goes to the city council on record and states that we might start thinking about stocking some cobra anti-venom immediately. That doesn't seem like it'd be easy to come by. That not, is Not here in America. Anyway. No, quite rare and actually hard to come by at the time. Now, on September 1st, 1953, William E. Hansen, he's the first city manager of Springfield, is sworn into office officially. Thinking he was going to walk into normal city affairs, he's quite wrong. With his first official day on the job dealing with deadly cobra invasions in his new city. After several hours of orientation and settling in, Mr. Hansen, the city manager, calls an emergency meeting at 3 p.m., his first day in office. He addresses several things, but obviously the hot topic, of course, is the legal and safety issues concerning the deadly snake outbreak. City council and doctors have found two doses of the very rare cobra antivenom, and he gives the order to obtain them both immediately to defend his city from what could be a deadly snake bite lawsuit. One antivenom is located in Florida. It's going to take several days to get here by mail, Luckily, a second antivenom is found at the St. Louis Zoo and is being air-flighted in within the hours on standby. September 2nd, 1953. The new city manager pushing as well as the police department begin to be overridden with citizen concerns. The exotic pet shop owner, Rio Maurer, is again approached with an ultimatum. Move the snakes far away from the city immediately, or the city will pursue a legal case of endangerment to the citizens of Springfield. Now, one might ask, even if this is accomplished, what's to say the cobras that are loose are not still there? At this point, we don't know how many there could have been, even though he swears, I keep scrupulous records. Near Miller Sales Barn, the new current location of where the snakes have been moved, have now petitioned Mr. Maurer to move the snakes from that area out of their neighborhood, to yet another area. Nobody wants these snakes around. Mr. Maurer has hired his own attorney, as I previously mentioned. He goes on record stating this type of pursuit of his client, meaning Mr. Maurer's, is unconstitutional. They are attacking his means of business and his financial support. But unfortunately, things do not get any better the next day. September 3rd, 1953. Another cobra is found and killed in a garage after a six-year-old little girl confronts the snake just across the road from Maurer's pet shop. Luckily, the child's mom hears the daughter's screams and comes immediately to kill it with a garden tool. Hearing all the commotion, Mr. Maurer leaves his shop just across the street, quickly comes to the garage where he scoops the snake up and whisks away its body. Detectives arrive while Mr. Bauer is literally trying to hide the carcass and the serpent is quickly identified as, you guessed it, another cobra. Public outrage begins to boil over with the latest attack, involving, of course, a six-year-old little girl, who luckily was not bitten. Mr. Rio Maurer lashes back and still continues, I am innocent. I'm just trying to help any way I can to control the anger towards these beautiful animals. September 4th, 1953. Springfield residents take matters into their own hands. They've had enough. Hundreds showing up for their own snake hunt. Some with guns, some with nets, others with garden implements. They fan out over the neighborhood for an entire day and turn up absolutely nothing. Meanwhile, Mr. Rio Maurer takes advantage of the citizens' focus around his pet shop area, sneaks out to the current location, and moves the snakes once again from Miller Storage Barns 
to an undisclosed location, which he's a little more careful to keep on the lowdown. Still, Springfield News and Leader continues to campaign at Rio Mowers, the pet shop owner. At this time, not just with stories, but they decide to dial it up a notch with cartoons and comics depicting Mr. Mauer strolling down the street releasing snakes from a bag and similar ill-humored cartoons. Ironically, in another section of the newspaper, business begins to advertise cobra-proof your homes, claiming they can make any house cobra-proof for the right price, of course. That's like the old tiger insurance joke. You know, I sell tiger insurance. Do you see any tigers around here? Then it must work. I'm doing my job. (laughs) Things continue to escalate over the coming days, even with the police force with instructions to shoot any type of snake or similar creature on sight. You got to be a crack shot to shoot a snake. You got that right. I've tried to do that. (laughs) Um, um, Yeah, I'm not so good at it. September 7th, 1953, police arrive to a call where a three-foot iguana is spotted where three officers fire multiple shots, killing the innocent creature in cold blood on East Traffic Way. The Springfield News and Leader picks the story up, of course, claiming the iguana surely came from the same Mowers Pet Shop and was most likely yet another example of an escapee. September 8, 1953, just like clockwork, another cobra sighting pops up, this time at nearby St. Louis Street, where a 10- and a 9-year-old pair of girls are out playing. Their screams are quickly alerted to the father, who comes and pins the snake's head down with a board. From out of nowhere, Mr. Rio Maurer once again appears, helping to capture the snake and whisk it away in a cardboard box before the detectives can arrive. City officials are at their wit's end. They send a group of officials directly to Maurer's home, demanding he relinquish the snake that he had captured just hours before. Maurer states for them, Contact my lawyer. He declares this snake was a harmless bull snake, continuing to defend himself as innocent. September 9th, 1953, another cobra found and killed. New city manager and city officials have finally developed and approved what they call a city ordinance of health and well-being regarding snake incidences and send out a full-blown raid to Mauer's pet shop. Inside, they find deplorable conditions. A dead penguin in a cage with other penguins. A penguin. What kind of Noah's Ark pet shop is this? I've never seen a penguin in a pet shop. You can buy a penguin. I mean, I guess the 50s were a different time, right? Obviously. Yeah. That seems weird. Who would want to own a penguin? I'm sorry. Well, I mean, they're adorable, right? Well, they do look cute in their little suits. Walling around in their little suits. (laughs) An overflow of animal feces, decaying vegetable matter, fills the entire building. Ironically, while police are raiding his pet shop, Mr. Rio Mowers runs to nearby Webster County and sets up at a snake expo at a traveling circus, offering to sell his serpents pennies on the dollar to anyone that's there. Attendees are visibly concerned and report Mr. Mowers to the circus with their concerns, and he is quickly asked to leave. Back in Springfield, police and officials continue to search the pet shop, finding inventory records that are less than accurate and not up to date. They also find an empty crate in the back room, stating 12 cobras had arrived to the shop weeks prior, yet none were found in the shop and there were no records of sales. The police then retrace and confirm five of the presumed 12 cobras have been killed and identified, 
along with the one unknown species that Maurer whisked away in the cardboard box. Most likely, though, it would only confirm for half 50% of the cobras, meaning that they were still 50% on the loose. During the same time, just outside, another neighbor, Mr. Stockton, while the police are at the shop, sees a large cobra crossing the street. He hurls rocks at it, striking it, but not killing it. The cobra flees the street and disappears beneath Stockton's house foundation, where there he alerts the police officers at the nearby pet shop. The police spend the next three hours bombing the house with smoke bombs, trying to drive the snake out, which finally occurs. One police officer, after seeing the snake, attempts to shoot it with a riot gun, but it jams and will not fire. He quickly unholsters his revolver and fires six rounds at the serpent, five of which hit the serpent. Police Chief Pike manages then to come in with a rope, noose, and slide it around the cobra's neck where they pin it to the ground with a board and finish it off with a garden hoe. A bit overkill. In the famous words of Dr. McCoy from Star Trek, it's worse than that, Jim. He's dead. At this time, Springfield's little cobra epidemic gains full exposure. The Springfield News and Leader receive requests from as far away as London, England on the story. Multiple newspaper and magazine reporters begin to fly in from out of state to cover the story. Police Chief Pike's personal house phone rings off the hook night and day from reporters trying to get the inside scoop. Newly elected city manager William E. Hansen finds himself in the middle of a full-spectacle city embarrassment three-ring circus. He launches controlled burns of open fields in order to burn thick weeds and brush that could be hiding spaces for the serpents. At the same time, these areas that cannot be burned in fire, the city manager directs police and support groups to continue with more snake hunts across the city. September 11, 1953, an anonymous caller phones into the police station that a group of vigilantes planned to burn down the exotic pet shop later that evening. Police go to the shop immediately and stand guard all night long. By September 12th, a total of seven open fields have been burned with controlled burn notice. Snakes and reptiles of all types are being killed during this as well by citizens handed out by the police department. Rio Mowers is approached by the city officials yet again this time giving him five days to remove all animals from the shop. Mowers retaliates, stating the city is attacking him and maintains his innocence. He states such a move of all the animals would bleed him dry and surely cause him financial ruin. He's, he's never financially going to recover from that. No way. We, we've heard that line lately. Yeah, yeah. September 14th. Any remorse the city or citizens might have had is thwarted when a two-year-old little boy, Charles Edward White, approaches a stray snake outside of his backyard and tries to catch it. In turn, the snake bit the 20-month-year-old boy where he was rushed to the local hospital. Now, luckily, this snake, in this instance, was not a cobra and was not venomous. This leads, however, to even more issues. As prank phone calls begin to now roll into the police department, many from alleged school students who are accepting this as a dare. In the time frame, Rio Mowers has successfully removed all the animals from his pet shop and the pins length, and pins a lengthy letter to the new city manager, Hansen, still sticking to his guns that he is innocent, but states he has done everything the city has ever asked 
including removal of the animals to two separate locations from his Springfield pet shop. He goes on to offer his help in any way possible to help with the cobra outbreak, as he is familiar with handling the creatures and dealing with them, stating he would be the last person on earth that would ever want anything bad to occur to any person, much less a child, from a snake or reptile. He also sends a copy of this to the Springfield News and Leader, who chooses not to print his letter in their paper. However, they do release a retaliation story titled Careless Reporting of the Facts, addressing the numerous out-of-state reporters who have flocked to their little rural town of Springfield, painting it in an ill light. They state these such reporters have elaborated and concocted half-truths on the incidences and blown it well out of proportions in order to gain publicity and subscriptions. Like they're not doing the same thing. Shop owner Rio Maurer writes in and submits his own article called Pot Calling the Kettle Black, stating this is exactly what the Springfield News and Leader has been doing the entire time, which while not picked up by the Springfield News and Leader, surprising, it is picked up by several other out-of-state newspapers that are clamoring for something new to publish and release. He reaches also out to numerous other exotic pet shop owners in the area of the adjoining states who bombard the Springfield newspaper office, name-calling and defending their comrade in business and in interest. The townspeople have ensued on a full-blown witch hunt of the local and legal businessman trying to ruin his reputation and run him out of town. These issues on several back-and-forth letters are published in many newspapers as shots are fired back and forth. September 17, 1953, yet another cobra, this one five foot nearly in length, is run over again and again and again by a vehicle where it is eventually pinned beneath the tire and finished off with a rock to the head. This directs city manager Hanson and police now to turn their entire focus into the small rural area around Maurer's pet shop to hopefully find the remaining cobras. City manager Hansen lashes out a bit in a town meeting, stating he is being bombarded with these strange events since accepting this job. This is not entirely what he anticipated. He goes on to jab back a bit at the citizens, stating a great deal of the time, his time as well as the, the city's time, is now being spent on uncontrolled citizen-set grass fires all around the city. This is tying up the fire department and wastefully spending of funds and times with everything else that's going on. It was at the same time a new wood flooring plank company was being constructed and unfortunately was caught in the flames of one of these fires, causing them to pull out of the city and move their business. That hits on what can only be described as a drought for several weeks leading into months without any rainfall making these grass fires even more dangerous. Springfield News and Leader, now selling more newspaper subscriptions than ever before, takes advantage once again of the whole snake ordeal. They pick up any story related to cobras or snakes to help fill in the days when nothing new was there to report in their own backyard. One such story is of cobras laying eggs at a local zoo, which they put a little spin on, stating, this could very well be happening here in Springfield, Missouri. Local scientists and experts are asked to intervene and are quick to respond that it is very doubtful due to the climate weather changes in the Ozarks that if eggs were laid, they would never hatch. 
Nearly two weeks pass without any subjects or new incidents. Cooler weather seemed to squelch the ordeal. That is until October 1st, 1953. A block from Maurer's shop, a trio of hunting dogs corner and kill a snake at Springfield Plumbing and Heating Company. Another confirmation of a cobra is made, making this the ninth of 12 suspect escapee cobras. This leads to a bit of an odd twist. Springfield Health Director D.E. Cahood locates a vinyl record recording of India snake charmers playing music that is said to charm the snakes. He approaches the city manager Hansen with a proposal to use this recording over loudspeakers to lure the cobras out to help find the remaining four alleged loose cobras. Hansen, frantic, concerned, ironically accepts the offer and agrees, although with less than favored opinions of city council. <laughs> well, he's kind of a far-fetched idea. It's a stretch. Still, Mr. Kaygood equips a Ford van with two large loudspeakers on the front and drives around the area playing very loud Cobra Charm music to the neighborhood. Now, a- when we say Cobra Charm music, are we talking like the whole flute? The snake charmer? Oh, my. Oh, man, I would have loved to have seen that. Yeah, yeah, cranked up. Now, a whole group of armed police officers and panicked citizens are shown walking behind in this twisted street parade. Apparently not known to the city at the time, cobras don't have ears. <laughs> Therefore, playing them this lovely tune did nothing whatsoever, besides cause more of a spectacle. October 5th, 1953, Springfield News and Leader once again releases cartoons, this time of the police department and the rigged music snake charming van for their eager subscribers. Pet shop owner Rio Mowers goes on the record scoffing stating this is an entire waste of time and the city's financial monies. However, in a bizarre twist of events, later that night, a six-foot cobra is lured out and killed, making it number 10 of the alleged 12. While local newspapers don't pick this story up, several other out-of-state newspapers do, and they declare Springfield's musical cobra tour a success. The city receives some of the highest votes of confidence. Crazy deadly cobras evicted from Springfield, Missouri by quick thinking of city officials who strap on speakers on a van and drive around the city playing snake charms to lure them out. Job well done, guys. Job well done. October 6th, 1953. Things just get weirder. Springfield police responded 2.45 a.m of a suspect drunk driver, 17-year-old Oklahoma man, a man by the name of Ralph Kramer Jr. Now, he flees the scene and leads the cops on a 45-minute high-speed pursuit through Springfield until he is apprehended, not before the cops open fire on the fleeing vehicle, firing seven shots directly into the car, blowing out the back glass and hitting the front windshield, causing the young 17-year-old driver to finally pull over. Now, we talk about police violence a lot in, in wow. modern society, but that seems like an extreme reaction to someone who might have been in drug. I mean, unless he was putting other people's lives at risk, just firing into his car. Seven shots, busting out the back glass, busting out the windshield. Now, upon questioning, the drunk 17-year-old man states he's a snake dealer, and he's found with empty bags and empty cages in his car, but also a rifle wrapped up in a towel in the back seat. 
The 17-year-old Oklahoma resident states he has nothing to do with the Cobra ordeal, and he himself was home in Oklahoma at the time of the original sightings. He is heavily interrogated the following days after sleeping it off in the cell overnight, and Kramer does confess Rio Maurer, the shop owner, has contacted him as well as several out-of-state pet dealers and collectors, offering to sell his remaining inventory at absurd cheap prices. This 17-year-old snake collector says, I just came to town hoping to score a few nice snakes next to nothing and hoping to triple my money in Oklahoma at a huge profit. Since he could not be connected in any way directly to the Cobra outbreak, he is instead of just booked with impaired and imprudent driving. Over the coming weeks, police decide to take the Cobra corpses on a tour around the city, charging admission to help raise money for the department with moderate success. However, with no new events to report, the case once again grows cold. Even the Springfield News and Leader begins to publish articles reflecting back on the whole ordeal as if to close the chapter. That is, until October 25th, 1953, as if right on cue, an 11th Cobra is reported the very next day, which is captured alive. 24-year-old David H. Kelly discovers the snake, returning home from church with his family, and immediately reports it to the Springfield police. David Kelly, along with the police officer, managed to capture the snake alive in a large gallon pickle jar. Reevaluating the accounts, this makes 11 confirmed cobras captured or killed. Taking into the consideration the mystery snake that Maurer swept away in the cardboard box that he states was a harmless bull snake, police and city declare that 12 cobras have indeed been captured, stating there's no reason, any more alarm or concern, the case is officially closed. The pickle jar variety cobra is loaned to the Springfield Zoo, where it is put on exhibition for locals to come and see the example of the menace that panicked their city for nearly two months. But Springfield snake fever doesn't go away easily. November 16, 1953. This time a different species, a giant boa constrictor, <laughs> is found in Springfield, almost nine foot in length and over eight inches in girth. Rumors of cobra eggs are rebirthed, but nothing more is evidence, and it finally dies down. Until an update decades later, in 1988. For decades after the great cobra invasion of Springfield, rumors continued to follow. Rio Maurer left town shortly after the last cobra sighting, almost vanishing without a trace. Can't blame him. No, I would have, yeah. <laughs> Get out of town. But in 1988, a nearly 50-year-old man by the name of Carl Barnett approaches the now Springfield Press newspaper with a shocking self-confession. Now, back in 1953, during the whole Cobra ordeal, Carl Bennett was only 13 years old. It seems he and Rio Mowers had a business arrangement. The young boy would capture local snakes and sell to the pet shop for 15 cents each. As it would happen in early August of 1953, young Carl sold such a common snake to Rio Mowers, but at the time, he decided instead to trade for a tropical fish that caught his eye there in the pet shop. The young boy, however, was heartbroken to find the tropical fish died before he even got it home, so he returned to face Mowers at the shop about the raw deal. Mowers was strict with the boy and basically told him, Grow up, kid. Business is rough. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Looks like this time you lost. 
The young boy left the shop through the back room, where he happened upon a wooden crate. He'd spied several dark-colored snakes within it, thinking to himself, these are probably just more of the black snakes or bull snakes that I've sold him. So so he's going to get a little revenge on Mauer there. I'm going to release the snakes that I've brought him. <laughs> oh, boy. Now, he later goes on to a local TV channel, KY3, for an interview about the incidents, and he swears he did not know they were cobras. Simply, he was trying to release some of the snakes that he thought he himself had captured and sold to Mauer's in retaliation for the dead tropical fish. That'll learn him. So who was really on the raw end of the deal there? <laughs> Mr. Mauer, sometimes you win, kid. Sometimes you lose. Looks like you lost. Yeah, 13-year-old kid uh, might have outwitted him. <laughs> well, we hope that you have enjoyed somewhat of a comical yet twisted amount of tales of Missouri here on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks for listening, y'all. However, after a particularly bad winter that destroyed the cop, well, cops in the field. <laughs> Those pesky yeah. cops hiding out in the fields. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, Lebanon, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, <laughs> using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much. <laughs>